Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the more interesting stories was about the future of your home gym. It's time to prepare for the smart home fitness revolution. We spoke to Lauren Good. She's a senior writer at Wired to talk about how these new home gyms will look like and what the difference is between these old and new systems. How are these going to be changing the game? One of the things that people have asked me as I have been on this sort of reporting adventure for these connected fitness devices is, well, isn't this just the same as having a treadmill in my basement or, you know, a stationary bike that eventually collects dust and turns into a coat rack or alternately just putting a YouTube video on a, you know, a flat TV, a 2D TV and having a similar experience. And it's a really good question. And the thing that the latest trend is around is creating content that streams live into your living room that makes it compelling enough to feel as though you're not really working out alone. You're actually part of a live streamed fitness class. Maybe that's a Peloton class. Maybe that's a tonal weightlifting session. Maybe that's a mirror live stream class. And at the same time, the instructors have the ability to give you some live feedback back and you also sometimes have the ability to interact by like sending someone an emoji or something like that. So these this newest wave of fitness product is supposed to create a more interactive experience. Let's talk about some of these because Mirror is one of the ones you mentioned in your article and it looks really cool. The founder of Mirror specifically says though they're a content business. They're a media company and that's kind of what you're talking about. They're offering live sessions, recorded sessions. So you almost feel that interaction. But let's start from the beginning. What is Mirror and how does that fit in to the internet connected fitness. Mirror is at one time like one of the coolest pieces of like home furniture you could possibly put in your living room because it just looks like a floor length mirror. And at the same time creates, the, I like to say it's like a somewhat dystopian experience where you turn <laughs> on the mirror and then all of a sudden there's this fitness avatar of somebody who is trying to guide you through like a cardio or a bar workout or right. something like that. So it does look like a mirror. And then when you turn it on and you connect your mobile app to it, you can either take a live stream fitness class or you can go to an on-demand fitness class and it offers a wide variety of classes and it's one of those things where it's supposed to just work into your routine right if you put this mirror between your bed and the coffee maker you kind of have no excuse not to just go work out with it it's expensive a lot of these new products are expensive they cost thousands of dollars up front to buy the hardware and then you end up paying for a media subscription so that's kind of what the ceo Bryn putnam was referring to it's not a compelling product just the hardware itself you have to have that video that keeps you engaged yeah and i saw a video of how the mirror works it is cool you see your reflection the whole time, which is an important component of working out. You know, you got to make sure you're doing certain things right or certain movements need to be accurate, but it is kind of superimposed. You can still see yourself, but you see video of whoever the person leading the exercise is. How much is Mirror and then how much is that subscription fee you were talking about? Mirror is $14.95 up front. So you're talking about $1,500 up front. If you're going to go this route, you're basically going to swap out your monthly gym membership. You buy the equipment and then your monthly membership is going to be the subscription to this to get new workouts and all that stuff. 
some ways that these are definitely a replacement for some people, especially when you consider that once you have this kind of connected fitness device in your home and you're paying for the media membership, it's not just you that can use it, but it's all of your family members as well. And so if you are looking to be a little bit more cost conscious, you can use this as your home gym. But I also think there's probably a fair amount of overlap between a customer that's going to invest in a product like this and somebody who's still going to have an outside gym membership or maybe have a bike that they ride around outside and that kind of thing. I think they're targeting aspirational customers, but maybe also people who, to your point, will just, this will replace their gym membership. Let's talk about Peloton for a moment because they're kind of leading the charge on this with first the bike. Now they have a new treadmill that you did get a chance to try out. But part of it is, you know, we're talking about the interconnectedness, the workout programs that they have there, the live sessions that you can do. So you're kind of creating a workout community, but from home, you don't have to go to the gym for it. Peloton really deserves a lot of the credit for driving this trend because they started selling their internet connected bikes in 2013. And what's funny about these companies is when you talk to them, it's not just like the days of Nordic track where you're you're talking about buying a piece of hardware. They all have production studios. I actually went to Peloton's production studio in New York City where they have cameras set up and it's a live stream class and they have a control room and people are calling, you know, the shots during the live stream class. So they are putting a lot of effort into making this content. And that's something that Peloton really kind of led the charge on. And their instructors become like many celebrities at some point too. Oh yeah, totally. They become some, you know, the Jane Fonda of the digital world. They have Instagram accounts. They have Facebook pages. There are these very slickly produced videos and they're trying to really push them as real people with personalities and bios. And they're not just a nameless, faceless spin instructor, right? You actually, some people develop like actual fanaticism with these people. They say, oh, I only take this person's class because I really, really <laughs> like them. So Peloton is trying to take some of that magic that it's managed to create with its bike and apply it to the treadmill. Like personally, I think the treadmill is probably one of the most dreadful of home exercise pieces <laughs> of equipment. It gets, people know it gets pretty boring on there sometimes. And so Peloton has now created a treadmill that has one of a giant, giant touchscreen display in front of you as you're running. And they're live streaming these classes. You took a lot of these classes in one of your stories here. You wrote that you were doing a mirror workout with a yoga instructor and they started saying something about how, oh, you know, my kid is learning how to walk. Do you really feel that closeness? You, in your article, you, you wrote like, I don't know if she was talking to me, but I'm going to send her an emoji the next time. Does it really <laughs> feel that close? I jokingly said, you know, I think we're best friends now, uh, which is that feeling you get sometimes from people who you follow on the internet. You don't really know them, but you establish this, I don't know, this kind of connection with them over the interwebs, as I like to say, and you kind of feel like you're friends, even though you don't know them in real life. And that's exactly the kind of feedback loop that these companies are trying to create between you and the instructor. Lauren Good, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. There is a ton of things going on in Washington recently. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis is leaving his post. Immigration and the border wall continue to be ongoing fights between the president and lawmakers. Disputes over funding the wall, how much money we're going to be throwing at it. But one thing that went by this past week was a rare bipartisan success. It had a little help from Jared Kushner. The Senate passed a criminal justice reform bill called the First Step Act. The House also passed it and should be on its way to the president's desk to be signed. The bill is limited in scope. It affects only federal inmates, but it addresses a lot of issues like mandatory minimum sentences, increased credit for good behavior, and makes some of the changes retroactive, which could send up to 4,000 prisoners home as soon as the president signs that bill. For more on that, we spoke to Steph Kite. She's a reporter for Axios. 
for all of the details. This certainly was a big bipartisan win, something that we don't see a whole lot of these days. And it's been a long time coming, particularly on this issue for the past several years. There have been various efforts to get some legislation passed that would change the federal criminal justice system. And we saw before even the 2016 elections, there was momentum there and that kind of dropped off once the elections came around. And so we saw this cycle of there being progress made on this issue and then it not making it to a vote and there being complications or arguments over the specifics. So this really was a big moment and it did come as President Trump ended up supporting the bill publicly several weeks ago. And a lot of that was due to Jared Kushner's involvement on this issue. He's been pushing for this for months and months and months from inside the White House and has been super involved on the Hill and in getting this bill to where it is now. What kind of legwork was he doing? I mean, just contacting a lot of senators and members of Congress to get this passed, or did he help in crafting some of the wording on this? How involved was he? There are various roles that Kushner played. He was super involved with just talking with different senators and House members when there was a different version of this bill passed in the House earlier this year. He was super involved in figuring out how do we get this passed? What's important? What will the president back? He was super involved in eventually persuading the tough on crime president to right. publicly support this. And so he was super involved on the White House end of things as well, kind of behind the scenes, making sure everything was in place, making sure that the bill was in a good place for the president to sign on to it. And so that was his role. But then obviously, of course, Senators Dick Durbin and Chuck Grassley were super involved on the Senate side, especially getting the bill to where it is right now, given the language and expanding it from the House version. As we said, it's called the First Step Act. So what does the bill do? How does it help reform the system? It extends the amount of time that prisoners can earn off of their sentence, both for good time credits, which means with if they have good behavior, inmates can earn a certain amount of time off of their sentences, and that's been expanded slightly. It also allows for incentives. So if, if a prisoner decides to participate in rehabilitation programs that are designed to help them prepare to re-enter society and re-enter the workforce, they can also earn additional time off of their sentence. And so those are two big points in this bill, but there are also items that require that prisoners be placed within 500 miles of family. And it outlaws shackling during childbirth, which is something that there were cases of. And it also mandates that women prisoners be provided sanitary napkins when they need them, which has also not been the case in many instances. It also reduces some mandatory minimum sentences, which is a big deal for a lot of reform advocates. So instead of a third strike penalty of a life sentence, that's been minimized to just 25 five years and then for certain drug offenses and there there are other instances of that. There's a lot of interesting things going on in this. You were talking about the good time credits and everything. It used to be 47 days per year that they could get credit for. They bumped that up to 54. Mm -hmm. A lot of these changes apply retroactively. So they're saying that as many as 4,000 prisoners could qualify for early release the day the bill goes into effect. The mandatory minimum sentences that could affect nearly 2,600 inmates. A lot of people are saying this is just a small step because it only applies on the federal level. I think there's some 87% of inmates incarcerated mm -hmm. in the U.S. are in like state facilities and local jails. Mm -hmm. So it is limited in scope on how many people this can affect because it's only applying on the federal side. Mm -hmm. But still, it's kind of getting the ball rolling for, for more reforms down the road. Absolutely. And there is a sense in which a lot of these reforms have been implemented at the state and local level in a lot of states. And there was a sense in which the federal criminal justice system was behind the times 
change, according to a lot of people. And so there is a sense of this both catching up to certain states, but also leading the way for other states and localities that haven't implemented these kinds of reforms. It is a huge bipartisan victory. It passed 87 to 12. But there were a few people opposed to this, primarily led by Senator Tom Cotton. What kind of opposition did they have to this? Senator Tom Cotton has been opposed to these reforms since they came up in the Senate. And he was really the one who was able to push this past the midterms. There was some effort to get a vote on this before the midterms, but largely due to Cotton's insistence, this was pushed till after the midterm elections. And last minute, he came up with a few amendments that were essentially designed to sink the bill that were worded in such a way that would win over some Republicans' support. But ultimately, all three of those amendments ended up failing by pretty large margins, and the bill ended up passing despite his effort. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I just wanted to add a little bit more about the big news about Defense Secretary Jim Mattis leaving the administration. President Trump announced it, as usual, on Twitter. It was a big bombshell. It hit people out of left field. And it seems that the whole reason why he left was the president's decision to pull troops out of Syria. Before this, they were signaling that the U.S. was going to be staying the course there. And then Trump pulled the plug out. It was a day later that Jim Mattis said, I'm out. President Trump said he was retiring. Jim Mattis, in his resignation letter, made it very clear he's leaving because he doesn't agree with the president. He says, my views on treating allies with respect, also being clear eyed about both malign actors and strategic competitors are strongly held and informed by over four decades of immersion in the issues. And because you have a right to a secretary of defense whose views are better aligned with yours, I believe it's right for me to step down from my position. So Jim Mattis, a steadying force there in the administration, is out now. And who knows what is going to be happening with the president's foreign policy now. So it's just huge news hitting Washington. And there's going to be more of this in the days to come. A big tech story this past week was that of artificial intelligence image generation. It's starting to get scary good. NVIDIA researchers released a paper and a video showing how impressive this machine learning has gotten. Computer-generated faces are looking so realistic, complete with wrinkles and everything. We spoke to James Vincent. He's a reporter for The Verge. And we started off by talking about what makes these pictures so special. The story here is how quickly we've advanced, but the pictures themselves, they're so weird to think about because they are not, you know, they're not like computer graphics that you might get in a video game or you might get in a film in which there is an individual, you know, an artist or a programmer sort of coding things and like adjusting a cheekbone here and adding in a little bit of color there. These are created completely out of whole cloth by an algorithm. And what it does is it's fed in a database of pictures of faces and it sort of combs through these and this these databases can be huge i'm talking millions of pictures of faces and from them it learns what a human face looks like and then it learns how to generate its own so these photorealistic images you know they don't have a human making little tweaks in them this is completely what we have taught machines right. to com- create by themselves they released mm. a video showing how the computer system works and you basically take two sources that they base off of and then they combine those images and then they're creating whole new people and it's funny because and they're just messing around with the values and they're creating brand new people different faces different genders ages different Mm. races it is amazing how crazy these minor tweaks create whole new people that particular technique is called style transfer and that is used in lots of subfields of ai image generation where you take the characteristics of one image and apply it to the other now in this case they're taking facial characteristics like skin color 
and hair color and eye color and all the rest. And they're applying that to new faces. But the sort of the underlying technique, which is uh, uses a type of system called a generative adversarial network or a GAN, as it's sometimes called, that's been around for a long time. So NVIDIA, they've come out with this new research, but they're very much building on a sort of a, a community wide research project. Lots of engineers, lots of researchers around the world are sort of working on this problem of how we create new images using AI. We all know that we, you know, we've been working on this. We want to improve the artificial intelligence. It helps us in so many ways with our phones and our machines being more intuitive to help us. But with these AI generated images, these faces, what's the purpose of these? There's a couple of reasons. Some of them are practical in that when you're training these systems, you need a lot of data. And if you're looking for lots of data of faces, it's very easy to get. So for example, you have databases that are taken from Flickr, where people have shared photos publicly and, you know, they tend to share photos of friends and family. So that includes a lot of faces. Or there is a very famous data set, which is of celebrities. Part of it is a practical reason. We just happen to have a lot of data for creating faces. The underlying motivation for improving AI image generation, well, there's lots of those. One of the big ones is that if we can create data which plausibly belongs to these training data sets, then we can use it for stuff like medical research. So say you're training an algorithm to look through scans like x-rays or something. You might need a lot of training data for it, but if you're looking for a particularly rare condition or a rare sort of tumor, for example, you might not have a lot of data. So if you create one of these networks, uh, these generative adversarial networks that can take a lot of data and then create new data from it, it gives you a new way to train these systems. So there are other reasons too to do with how they might be used in the entertainment industry. But this research really has some practical benefits for important stuff like uh, healthcare. I think that's very interesting because a lot of people don't really realize that aspect of it. Everybody's concerned with deep fakes and, uh, mm. you know, people making fake porno and things like that. And you don't really think about the larger impacts, the better stuff that you can accomplish with stuff like this. But, you know, because it's all over the place. We're already getting fake Instagram influencers that are computer yeah. <laughs> uh, computer generated. That's where everybody's mind goes to initially. How do we spot some of these fakes? They're getting better and better. So how do we differentiate them? I mean, that's a really interesting question. And, and I'd just like to say something to that is a term that researchers in the AI community use, and I think it's very important. And it's what they call dual use technology. It's a very, you know, very simple, very straightforward term, but it's just a way of remembering that every time you create a tool like this, there are going to be positive sides and there's going to be negative sides. Right. And, you know, the job of researchers and the job of the journalists is to think about both of these externalities and explain them. So how do you spot fakes? That's a fantastic question. When it comes to faces, there are things that, although these algorithms have the huge data sets of human faces, there are things that they just don't understand as intuitively as humans do. So, for example, they don't quite get facial symmetry. They may do faces, they may create faces where the sort of ears are not at the same height, or the eyes aren't the same distance from the bridge of the nose, or the eyes are different colors. Obviously, some of these traits may exist in humans to a certain degree, but they are <laughs> right. good tells. And there are other issues like teeth. I find teeth a really funny one. So AIs, they're not very good at counting when they're doing this sort of image generation. So sometimes they will put in too many teeth or <laughs> they will put in teeth that are sort of blurred and you get a smile, which is just a little bit off-putting somehow. So you're looking for things that are slightly uncanny, but these systems have improved so much. These little bits of uncanniness are getting harder and harder to spot. James Vincent, reporter for The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.